The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we will take a look at various apparent, supposed, Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. We will examine them against what the Bible says in context, according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you as a listener have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions, will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding and, more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. 
Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forward by Mr. Ash. For our first randomly selected apparent Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Quote, is God found by everyone, or is God only found by some? To support his apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash runs to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 28, which says, quote, Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Unquote. Mr. Ash then runs to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17, which says, quote, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Unquote. Also, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 8, which says, quote, For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Unquote. From these, Mr. Ash then concludes that there is a contradiction between God supposedly agreeing to be found by anyone and everyone, and God refusing to be found by some. The first problem in Mr. Ash's question is that Mr. Ash has constructed a complex question fallacy. In essence, the question is, who is able to find God? The second problem is that none of the above verses being cited are intended in context to answering this question. If anything, these verses speak to those who have already found God about various issues for the child of God. The solution here is to adopt a proper context recognize the genre, and apply a proper biblical worldview regarding the above verses. First of all, Mr. Ash sets the table for a contradiction by failing to understand what Proverbs chapter 1 is talking about. Proverbs chapter 1 is personifying wisdom and the lack thereof and providing several axiomatic realities which logically find their results. Thus, the seeking, the finding, or the inability thereof has wisdom as its goal, not finding God or the inability thereof. The same can be said of Proverbs chapter 8. Further, the wisdom in question, both in Proverbs 1 and 8, are directed to those who have already found God. God has already heard them because they have a relationship with Him by grace through faith. This also is an axiomatic reality. In truth, outside of God's grace to initiate repentance and reconciliation, all mankind is and remains separated and is unable to attain to anything pleasing to God, including wisdom. 
It is only when God opens our hearts by his grace to receive reconciliation that we can by his indwelling spirit discern, desire, love, seek, and understand wisdom and its virtues. In this context, Proverbs 1 is simply reminding God's people that wicked and godless people are not going to find God's wisdom because wicked and godless people do not love or have a relationship with God, and therefore they are going to be in antagonism to God's attributes and virtues, including his wisdom. Proverbs 8 is saying when God's people sincerely want, seek, and love wisdom, they will find it because it is God's nature and love to supply those things which his people need. In context, Matthew chapter 7 verse 8 is speaking to believers in God. Verse 11 makes it clear that the success, the asking, the receiving, and or the finding is contingent on having a relationship with God. Verse 11 talks about the truth of God as our Heavenly Father having the nature and desire to give good gifts to His children. The problem is that some are laboring under the universalistic notion that we are all children of God and thus anyone can ask God for whatever they want and He's obligated to provide it. Yet Jesus Himself said to the Jewish religious elite in His day, Quote, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. Unquote. This is because this group, as with all mankind, start and remain underneath the effects of sin and separation. Since the penalty of sin is death, the only thing which God justly owes mankind is death. It is only when God, by His grace, draws us to repentance and reconciliation that we can, by adoption, be His children and thus petition God, as our Father, to do those things for us which are according to His perfect will. Thus, in the end, there is no contradiction because Proverbs chapter 1, verse 28 and chapter 8, verse 17 Contrast those who find God's wisdom because they value it due to being children of God and those who don't because they are not children of God. Both results are predicted by God, so there is no conflict. Matthew isn't talking about wisdom at all. He's talking about prayer by believers, so there is no correlation to Proverbs or to the alleged contradiction posed. In our next question, Mr. Ash asks, quote, Who is the father of Joseph? Is it Jacob or Heli? Unquote. Mr. Ash finds his apparent contradiction this time between Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, which says, quote, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, unquote. Then Mr. Ash runs to Luke chapter 3, verse 23, which says, quote, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, 
being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, unquote. Now, first of all, Heli is the biological father of Mary, the mother of Jesus the Christ. Jacob is the presumptive biological father of Joseph, who is Mary's husband, and the adoptive father, if you will, of Jesus the Christ. Next, we have a contextual issue of major import, which Mr. Ash forgets, is unaware of, or simply refuses to acknowledge. Namely, with regard to the two respective genealogies of Matthew and Luke, they were written to intentionally demonstrate two different aspects of Jesus' life and identity. Luke wrote to emphasize the humanity of Jesus the Christ. Matthew wrote to emphasize the kingly rule and divine authority of Jesus. Matthew and Luke contain different genealogies of Jesus. Luke's genealogy starts at Adam and goes to David. Matthew's genealogy starts at Abraham and goes to David. When the genealogies arrive at David, they split with David's sons. Luke proceeds with Nathan on Mary's side, and Matthew proceeds with Solomon on Joseph's side. As a result, any time Mr. Ash compares the two genealogies, Mr. Ash implodes because he fails to see what is being emphasized. Insofar as the supposed contradiction is concerned, the answer is found in two parts. One, when reading Luke, we need to look at the Greek. If we do so, we see that the Greek says that, quote, Joseph was of Heli, unquote. The word, quote, unquote, son is inserted by the translators in an effort to ostensibly help, but in fact they create the apparent contradiction which does not exist in the original or in context. 2. If Heli did not have any sons, or his sons died and the only living children that Heli had were female, in this case Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Christ, then under the Mosaic law given in Numbers chapter 27 verses 1 through 11 and Numbers chapter 36 verses 1 through 12, the husband, i.e. Joseph, would become the legal son of the bride upon marriage to the woman, i.e. Mary, to keep up the family name. Therefore Joseph, when he married Mary, became the son of Heli according to the law of Moses and could legally be included in the genealogy. So the fact is that Joseph is the biological son of Jacob and at the same time, as Luke says, Joseph is, quote, of Heli, unquote, or in the modern vernacular, the son-in-law of Heli, the father of Mary. Thus, once again, using proper context, language, and custom, 
we see that there is no contradiction. There is, in fact, agreement. For our third question, Mr. Ash asks, quote, didn't Paul the Apostle lie when he quoted Jesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, which says, quote, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive, unquote. Here, this is a supposed contradiction drawn from an argument of silence combined with argument absurdum. Firstly, it is absurd to imagine that at the time that Paul spoke these words, that Paul had a completed version of the Synoptic Gospels, i.e. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in a printed form that he could open and read. At the time Paul spoke, the only thing he had was the vocalized teaching of those disciples who later wrote down the things which they remembered happening or Jesus saying. Secondly, the only way that we could say definitively that Paul was or is lying would be to have had the luxury of having a court reporter following Jesus around night and day for three years diligently recording every word Jesus ever spoke. Then Paul could have ordered an iPhone and asked Siri to Google the vast three-year encyclopedia recorded of every moment Jesus made. Notice Paul does not say, quote, remember the things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John wrote in their gospel, which you all have, unquote. So the real question is, was every single thing which Jesus ever said or did memorialized verbatim in the New Testament? No. John confirms this in chapter 20, verse 30, quote, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name." Unquote. Also, John chapter 21, verse 25 says, quote, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Unquote. In the final analysis, I don't think that even Mr. Ash would argue that if Jesus came to earth as a man, lived, preached, was crucified and died, then according to John verse 3, verse 16, which even Mr. Ash should be familiar with, Jesus is the quintessential example of tangibly demonstrating the greatest example in history of the blessedness of giving rather than receiving. It is difficult to imagine that with this being the focus of his life and ministry, that the topic Paul quotes would not have been discussed by Jesus many times. 
So, no, Paul is not lying. Jesus' entire life, ministry, crucifixion, death and resurrection amply and repeatedly teach that it is better to give than to receive. The fact that we do not see that exact quote recorded simply means that it was not recorded, not that Jesus did not say it. Next, Mr. Ash asks, quote, Does God get tired and he needs rest? Or is God never weary? Unquote. In order to construct this apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash first runs to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, which reads, quote, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made, unquote. Mr. Ash also cites Exodus chapter 31, verse 17, which says, quote, It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed." Unquote. Finally, Mr. Ash quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, which reads, quote, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding." Unquote. From these, Mr. Ash then insists that there is a contradiction between a God who supposedly never gets physically or otherwise weary, and one who supposedly needs to take a nap, a vacation, or rest to refresh himself. Thus, there is no God because Mr. Ash knows in his wisdom that God should not be getting tired. The answer to this is proper context, languages, as well as discernment of the types being given as a pattern for their substance. First of all, in order to give a complete picture of what is in view regarding the quote-unquote rest, and of the quote-unquote work which is discussed in the various passages, I would direct those interested to the episode entitled, The Day of Rest. In summary, the terminologies in question of rest versus work are earthly types used to discuss and give progressive revelation from God to man regarding God's relationship to man. The passage from Exodus and Genesis are earthly historical events and instructions given to demonstrate heavenly truths. The rest, i.e. Sabbath in view, which God instituted at the end of creation, is not a commentary by God or the writer which refers to some anthropomorphic aspect of God's nature. It does not infer or refer to some alleged idea that God gets tired or needs rest. The word rest simply means to cease from some activity already or previously in progress. So God created for six days and then he ceased from that process of creating on the seventh day. From a typological substantive standpoint, prior to the fall, 
God demonstrated via the Sabbath that as God, he had done all that ever needed to be done for fellowship with man. It was finished. All that Adam and Eve needed to do was to rest in faith in God's finished work from the seventh day onward, and all would continue to be good and perfect as God created it. Because they did not, the original potential purpose of the day of rest was lost due to man's choice. Afterward, what remained simply became a ceremonial event, an eventual schoolmaster pointing to God's remedy and waiting of the finished work he would later accomplish on the cross. Insofar as the verse in Exodus is concerned, the original Hebrew word translated, quote, refresh, unquote, should more properly be translated to, quote, cease, unquote, or to stop, unquote. This is again consistent in context with the Genesis quote, as well as with the explanation just given. The English word refresh is obviously only a translation of the Hebrew word, and we would use it as it applies to man and his physical observance of the Sabbath. When referring to God, we would properly use the English word cease or stop, since as Mr. Ash and Isaiah observe, God does not get weary, nor does he faint. So the solution is to understand that the three verses are discussing two different things. Isaiah does refer to the fact that God's nature is such that he, being spirit, never gets tired or weary in a fleshly sense. At the same time, we can correctly say, as in Genesis and Exodus, that God ceased or stopped in the creative process after six days. Thus, there is, once again, no contradiction. Next, Mr. Ash asks, quote, Who incited David to count the fighting men of Israel? Was it God or Satan? Unquote. Mr. Ash this time finds his apparent Bible contradiction in reading 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, which says, quote, And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah, unquote. Mr. Ash then turns to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, which says, quote, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Unquote. From these two verses, Mr. Ash concludes that he has caught the Bible once again in a blatant contradiction, which proves that the Bible is utterly untrustworthy. Now, these two verses do refer to the same incident where David numbered the people of Israel. Also, God's anger was kindled for various justified reasons against Israel. The ultimate key to unlocking the dilemma is to understand that the, quote, he, unquote, which appears in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, refers to Satan, not God. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, clarifies this. From an overall theological standpoint, God is always in sovereign control of the affairs of mankind, including this incident with David. We understand from God's revelation of his nature that it is always his perfect will that everyone would have fellowship 
would love, trust, obey, and serve him. However, in order for these qualities to have meaning to God, God gave man his own will to choose whether he will have faith in him or not. Mankind broke his perfect fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden, and now that fellowship, although still possible, is only perfect as we are each seen by God in the atoning completed work of his son Jesus, as we each exercise faith in that completed work. From and since the incident of Genesis, the serpent, Satan, has and continues to use every device as his disposal to trick us, to damage, and to ultimately destroy all trust and faith in God. So it is important to understand that throughout history, including this incident with David, that Satan is always tempting and luring people into doing things, sometimes for seemingly noble motives which are not according to God's perfect will. Now the fact is that as long as we seek God's will and abide in fellowship with him by faith, we may be tempted, but we will not fail if we are truly trusting and following him. On the other hand, if we do not fully trust God and or we begin to supplant God's will with our own wisdom, then we run the risk that we may fall out of God's perfect will and thereby enter his permissive will. To demonstrate this concept, imagine a ruler with a single movable piece attached which can go in one of two directions, left or right. At the far right hand side we have a label reading God's perfect will. At the far left hand side we have a label reading God's permissive will. Either way you go, God is still in control of everything and does as he pleases. The farther I go to the right, via trust, obedience, submission, patience, love, and faith in God, the closer I am to God's perfect will. The more that I rationalize, doubt, sin, and rebel against God, the further I get away from his perfect will. God permits this, even though it is not his perfect will, in order to fully demonstrate all of his various attributes. But let's not be naive. Whenever we are experiencing temptation to rebel, to sin, to doubt, etc., it is ultimately Satan who is the agent who initiates, promotes, and capitalizes on those opportunities. This is exactly the situation in the two above verses. As with so many other times, Israel had rebelled against God by taking part in rebellion against David with Absalom and later with Sheba, the son of Bichri. There was constant strife between the commanders of the armies of Israel and Judah, and Joab demonstrated himself to be a cold-blooded murderer several times. These sins, the rebellion, and the lack of recognition on the part of God's people that it was God who was in control, created the attitude on the part of God's people which moved them farther and farther away from God's perfect will. Unfortunately, as is the axiomatic reality in these cases, the farther one is from God's perfect will, the more vulnerable one is to Satan's devices, such as in the case here. 
When Israel collectively began rebelling against and rejecting God, God allowed them to do so, and then Satan was able to tempt them into numbering the people. However, the good news is that because both ends of the scale are under God's control, God often allows such events to teach the folly of man's rebellion. God can use man's rebellion and even Satan's involvement to achieve his supreme will, the same way a gardener uses manure to grow roses. Another aspect which clarifies the contradiction is that God's authority extends even over Satan. God can use Satan to accomplish his ultimate will by simply exercising his permissive will, allow Satan to do which Satan already desires to do. So in this case, 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1 provides the context to help us understand that Satan is the agent who does the actual inciting of David to number the people, when in 2 Samuel chapter 24 verse 1, God's people abandon God's perfect will through rebellion and open themselves to be vulnerable to Satan's desires via God's permissive will in order that they would have the opportunity to learn from their mistake, they would repent, and they would be reconciled back into God's perfect will. This being the case, if we use context and discernment, we see that there is no contradiction. Finally, in this episode, Mr. Ash asks, quote, Is God pleased or displeased with creation, unquote. First, Mr. Ash runs to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, which reads, quote, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day, unquote. Mr. Ash then proceeds to Genesis 6, 6, which reads, quote, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart, unquote. From these two, Mr. Ash then concludes that God is contradicting himself, since in one case, God states he is pleased with his creation, and in another case, God states that he is displeased. However, in an attempt to help Mr. Ash, I would point out that the fact is that it is not God who is changing his mind. It is man who is changing. God was pleased with all of his creation. It was good and perfect up to Genesis 3. God gave Adam and Eve each the free will to choose between faith and trust in God and maintain the covering of God's image-bearing qualities or to turn from that and trust in their own efforts via the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve chose to distrust God, rebel, and fall into sin and separation. At that very moment, based upon the choice by Adam and Eve, things were no longer good and perfect. The curse of man's sin and rebellion was upon God's creation as a result. Consequently, God was displeased with the fallen status and nature of his creation. The good news is that God did not just walk away and give up. God had already foreseen and anticipated such a possibility. God sent his son Jesus to tabernacle in flesh as a man, live a perfect, holy, and righteous life pleasing to God on our behalf, 
Jesus took all of our sins, which displeased and separate us from God, and was crucified and died as a penalty for those sins. We can, by God's grace, now exercise faith and trust in Jesus' completed work on our behalf and have his righteousness imputed to our account, whereby each who do so are reconciled to fellowship with God, and he is pleased with a new creation made in us by and through his son Jesus. So thus far in volume one of this series, we have examined and answered six questions regarding Bible contradictions from Mr. Ash. In each case, these are serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's word, but rather a collection of myths and fables, only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these six and a myriad of remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. If you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust